0: The following is a special episode of Common Sense Digest. On June 21st, 2022, Common Sense Institute hosted Eggs in the Economy, a quarterly symposium featuring guest speakers on a variety of public policy issues, highlighting the most pressing issues Colorado is currently facing. Our most recent event featured CSI Chairman Earl Wright, Senior Economist Stephen Byers, Mike A. Laprino Fellow Evelyn Lim, Vice President of Policy and Research Chris Brown, representative of Colorado's 35th district, Shannon Byrd, and Luigi Del Puerto, managing editor of Colorado Politics, serving as moderator. The panel discussed the issue of affordability in Colorado. Thank you for listening to this edition of Eggs in the Economy. We now join Chairman Earl Wright delivering his remarks in progress.
1: Raise their hand and point out that Stanford was an assertion is you have a point of view, you have a point of view, you have a point of view. Point of view. An argument is where you actually have to say what are the facts behind what you're saying what are the premises behind what you're saying well argument allows us to have discussion facts and we like to think we promote civil discussion with facts and that's what we're all about well before we start today i want to uh, thank our event sponsor amazon Thank you very much. We sincerely thank you for your support for being here this morning. Also, I'd like to recognize the elected officials who have come here and also thank you for your, your, your journey into this public arena that you're about to undertake or you have undertaken. And with those of you that are running for public office and or in public office, would you please stand? <laughs> I sincerely thank you for your efforts in taking the risk uh, to be involved in the service to our state and our communities. We're grateful you're here, and we know it takes a lot of time. That's how democracy works. Thank you. Uh, before we get to the program today, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the legislative session, what happened from our perspective. <coughs> there were more than 600 bills introduced this year. 600 bills in 120 days. I have no idea how in the world you handle 600 bills. And I don't even know how somebody could read 600 bills and be responsible in voting. But that's another discussion, another one of the eggs in the economy later on. At CSI, we're focused on the issues that threaten and impact our economy most. Taxes, fees, crime, affordable housing, unemployment insurance, healthcare, greenhouse emission goals, para, one of my favorite, and more, I encourage you to visit our website and review our recent studies. I think you'll find that what we're trying to do is say, hey, what is happening in these particular issues? Do you understand the magnitude of them? And then let you decide, along with other elected representatives, what does that mean that we need to do, if anything, at the legislature or in the public policy arena? If you take a look at the brochures on your table, there's a synopsis of the research and analysis that we've conducted at CSI. Take one, share it with your colleagues and friends. Help us communicate as best as we possibly can throughout the community of the research so everybody can be better informed on public issues that in my mind are incredibly important for this state to thrive. Now there's good news, there were some victories. Now, we measure victories by the fact that we had a chance to have our reports read by some of the people that were in the legislature, that helps, and also that the public in essence took the reports and said, hey, what about these facts and figures and what are we gonna do about it? So when you take those victories, what I'm very proud of and I'm passionate about, as you all may know, is Para. On this issue, I wanna thank Representative Byrd. She stepped out in front of her colleagues got involved in a committee this summer, took a lot of time on her, on her part this summer, and others here uh, to, got involved. And uh, for those that were involved in PERI and that subcommittee, would you kind of raise your hand? We got two, the chair is here, or there's three of us here, okay. And I'd like to thank um, thank for your involvement because under her leadership, the Intercommittee on Pension Reform reached a consensus and the General Assembly bipartisan passed a proposal to rescue para and protect the pet taxpayers from a growing liability well that's a bit of an overstatement We've, we we uh, helped the issue we still got more work to do if I if I understand where we are but you know, we're on a good road to recovery we also made some crime fixes and achieved progress towards funding the unemployment insurance trust fund I really want to congratulate our, our CSI group in working hard on the unemployment insurance trust fund. I think the information that they put forward helped the legislature understand even better and up, come up with a compromise. I may be taking too much credit for you all, but I, that's my feeling, and I'll let other people, you know, chime in if it's appropriate. Overall, there were victories, but nothing is perfect, nothing is bold, and nothing is long term. But you know, we've made some progress. As we look for the next six months beyond, we know that the rising costs are putting pressure on Coloradoans. Families are facing tough choices with their budgets. We just pointed out that inflation has cost the average Coloradoan five thousand six hundred dollars, Stephen. Five thousand something. The inflation has cost the average Coloradoan recently. Businesses are feeling the pinch. Um I dare you to try to hire staff today and fill positions. Um Inflation is taking its toll. The repercussions are vibrating across the entire economy. That brings us to the topic this morning. We have an affordability crisis. This crisis has been driven some by policy decisions. If we had said it once, we'll say it many more times, policy matters, facts matter, matter. data matters. To help kickstart the conversation, it's my pleasure to introduce the CSI Vice President of Policy and Research, Chris Brown. Chris, please go forward.
2: Sorry. Earl, don't go too far. Don't go too far. Uh, Representative Bird, would you come up here real quickly? She has a few remarks to make as well. Yes.
3: So um, I'm a little short here, so bear with me for a second. Um, so thank you for being here this morning. And it is just my privilege to be able to come up and say a few words about Earl Wright. Um, as he mentioned, I am chair of um, all things para at the Capitol, including um, the Pension Review Subcommittee, which he aptly participated on. And um, all of you should know that we were able to do something really big this session. Um, You know, all things good take a lot of really hard work, and it turned out just paying back what we owed to Para was a really big deal and a lot of hard work, and it could not have happened were it not for the advocacy of Mr. Wright. So I hope you'll all join me in a round of applause, thanking him for his service to the state of Colorado. is a great um, summary of our work and some pictures of our signing ceremony with the governor and it is such well-deserved recognition. Thank you so much. Yes, thank thank you. you.
1: Her leadership actually made it happen. So there, give her a round of applause.
2: With that, uh, I'd like to turn now and uh, welcome the panel and if if, might as well have everyone on the panel come up and join and then I will introduce you as uh, as you sit there and be admired Uh, so first on the panel uh, Dr. Stephen Byers is a CSI's senior economist Stephen joined CSI February of this year Um, before, uh, before Stephen graduated Colorado State University with his PhD he worked in, uh, as I I understand, top secret projects. As an engineer with Martin Marietta, uh, myself and our team are still trying to get the details on exactly what what that entailed, he still won't tell us. Um, But he spent 23 years as an economist, roles with the SEC, the Public Accounting Oversight Board and other federal agencies out of Washington, D.C. and produced award-winning research, economic impact analysis with the trade policy work Coalition for a Prosperous America. And he just reminded me yesterday that he used to have an 8.7 golf handicap, but that has gone downhill since he started as well. Uh, uh, Evelyn Lim is the current uh, uh, Mike A. Leprino 2022 Free Enterprise Fellow. She joined us in the spring as well, talking about her first project as part of this fellowship. Um, you may have seen Evelyn in, in past in past events, her work with her co-fellow Peter Lafari working on housing last year. Evelyn has held multiple roles both in Colorado with groups like Colorado Concern and nationally, including uh, as the director of transportation security policy at the White House from 2005, 2007, and most recently as the region eight HUD administrator under Secretary Ben Carson. Um, She is a wealth of information. We're very glad to have her on the team. Uh, State representative Shannon Byrd was elected to District 35 in Adams County in 2018, re-elected in 2020, and as I understand, is a candidate running in District 29 um, as part of the redistricting and whatnot that uh, I will have no details for you on, but you sh- I'm sure she will be able to describe. Uh, you, know, you know, you heard about her important work with Para, but Representative Byrd has been really a thought leader on a range of issues impacting business, housing, and many other topics, serving as the chair of the House Finance Committee. And I read in your bio that you are a, a CU graduate. Uh, you have an MBA in MS Finance from CU Denver while working full time and a law degree from DU. So I think it's it's no surprise uh, you are a thought leader on these, on these topics. Uh, Luigi Del Puerto is the managing editor with Colorado Politics and will be moderating the panel. Uh, Luigi joined Colorado Politics early this year after being publisher and editor of Arizona News Service, a Phoenix-based media company that covers public policy and politics in the Grand Canyon State. Under his leadership, the Arizona Capital uh, Times, Arizona Capital Times snagged nearly 130 journalism awards since 2017. Um, And I have to say, uh, as a fellow former Arizona, and although I did live in the Northeast for years, I have to say that I do appreciate your Twitter takes on the snow and adapting to life in Colorado. Um, and you've, from the looks of it, you've adjusted you know, as well as you have to the, to the politics here. So thank you very much for moderating, and it shows yours.
4: Oh, thank you, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? Good, okay, perfect. Uh, just just so you know, a little bit about me. Um, my wife was uh, Nurse of the Year. Uh, my sister-in-law, her, uh, her sister was uh, Teacher of the Year. And, and then that's when I realized I, I am the weak link in the family. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's great to be here. My, my family moved to Colorado about six months ago uh, in November. That was before the reports uh, came out that people are in fact leaving Denver. And so uh, I'm kidding. It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, so yesterday I called a friend of mine uh, from Arizona and asked, Hey, how's the, how are things over there? And he uh, he said uh, it's 120 degrees, so I'm uh, I'm kind of Chris. We're stuck between 120 degrees in Phoenix, and uh, at the city of Denver, raising our uh, parking meter rates by 100%. It's now two dollars instead of <laughs> instead of one. Um, talking about the issue of affordability, um, obviously it's a very important issue, as Chris has laid out. Um, and I guess the more important question is. What can we do about it? What can we in the state do about it locally? What can the city of Denver, uh, Aurora, Lakewood, Englewood, the state do about this problem, this challenge that we're facing? I will guess I'll start with uh, Representative Bird.
3: Well, um, thank you. Thank you again for having me here today. It's such an honor to be part of the panel. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do. Of course, recognizing that Colorado is one part of a much larger ecosystem. The issue of inflation, I think it was already brought up by Chris, um, is not unique to Colorado and it's not even unique to the United States. If you read literature, um, the issue of inflation is impacting countries around the world and, and of course, the United States, we are included in that. Um, Good policy is going to focus on what we can do to bring down energy costs to try to um, hit some of these drivers of inflation, which has also been our labor shortage How do we get uh, higher uptake in workforce participation, more people on the job addressing supply chain concerns. Um, a lot of this policy, I don't know that will come necessarily from the state, but we shouldn't be making it harder for people to um, go back to work. We shouldn't be making energy costs higher. We shouldn't be making housing costs higher. I know um, as we get in further on to our discussion, I'll have an opportunity to talk about some of the work that we did this last legislative session to try to free up some of these issues, free up labor, get businesses going again, reduce their costs, keep more money in people's pockets, try to do it in a thoughtful way where we're not all rushing and spending and driving up prices, which um, is our topic at hand. But um, I I think there are a whole bucket of uh, policy uh, tools that we can bring to the fore in addition to um, our colleagues at the federal level.
4: Thank you for that. And we'll flesh out those, those tools in a little bit. But Evelyn, what about from your end?
5: well i i agree with representative Byrd. i think that there's a lot a lot of policies that we could be doing that reduce costs here in colorado even though it is obviously a global and national issue um, sorry about that uh, and so i think that we should be really looking at what we can do here in colorado um, my report that was dropped today talks about uh, some of the legislation that uh, passed this last session that really can um, in, uh, increase the cost of housing and so we should really look uh, critically at those types of things because what we want to do is is reduce regulation that adds to the cost that hurts a lot of people here who you know you were lucky to come in when maybe housing prices were taking a, a bit of a dip but as we were talking uh you know before the panel uh that's that's really uh an anomaly in this market
4: I, again just to clarify that one, we, we uh we bought our home a realtor told us at a time when there were there was more inventory than people looking for homes. And so we got our home at a price that we, we could afford. Uh, and, he, and our realtor, quite frankly, said that's never happened in the last three years here. Uh, and so we got pretty lucky that way. Um, Stephen, what about you, sir?
6: Well, it's an interesting time to be alive because we've experienced this. Uh, the pandemic that created huge supply chain disruptions. But at the same time, we had extraordinary uh, monetary policy that uh, made money very cheap and the, the net result combined with uh, really uh, extraordinary fiscal measures at the federal level was we had more dollars chasing the same amount or fewer goods. And whenever you have that, you get inflation so that any, that any of our elected officials are surprised we have inflation. I'm surprised to hear that, because uh, it's, it's common sense that that's gonna happen. Um, can legislators and elected officials bring down costs? Um, indirectly, they can. I guess one good example is if they're worried about the price of energy, why have we been attacking the energy sector so heavily, particularly here in Colorado? So if they're going to really address these issues, they need to look and see what impact they've had on inflation in particular and do something about that.
4: And and just uh, so I understand this one, what you're really saying—and correct me if I'm wrong—is that we ramp, we, I mean, the the country has ramped up spending in the last two years or so. There's there's a lot of money that that's being spent, and if that's the case, naturally the prices of goods are going to go up. That's what you're saying.
6: Uh, Yeah, it's uh, more dollars chasing the same amount or fewer goods, so prices go up.
4: Uh, Chris, the same question to you, sir.
2: That's a maybe not to repeat what was been said on the panel I think I, I you know wouldn't be doing this work if didn't think that state and local policy had had an impact but i i I also look at it from the standpoint that this is a national phenomenon, this isn't a national phenomenon. there are real constraints that Colorado by itself can't directly overcome, but I think it's important to to understand they can make it worse, and I think policy can make situation worse, and uh, I guess we, we went through and looked at the direct costs of this legislative session. It was a big departure from the last two years, last several years that we've seen uh, both at the ballot uh, and at the legislature in terms of changes to policy, uh, changes in taxes and fees, so there was a definite recognition that legislature has some uh, ability to, to moderate this and not make that worse, um, but I think the, the jury may still be out on some of the long-term indirect costs.
4: Let's dig into that just a little bit. You, you mentioned there are things that we, quite frankly, can't control. Uh, nothing we can do about them at the state level or the local level. Can you cite one or two of those things?
2: Well, I mean, we, we many of our products, many of our services exist in a in a global market, and so we talk about fuel prices that is really underlie uh, a lot of the uh, increase in core inflation is, is partially driven, large part driven. Uh, someone here may, you know, you may may fact check me here, uh, senior economist, but is is driven by higher higher commodity prices in our in in, in oil and gas, and that has faced massive disruption, in uh, globally. And so, uh, Colorado, you know, we has some ability to moderate that, and I think has some ability to to offset some of that partially, but these are, these are global markets, global commodity prices that um, ultimately are largely out of the state's control.
4: Um, Just really quickly, you're uh, running in a different district, correct? Uh, As a result of redistricting?
3: It's a different district number, but at least half of the same district.
4: Yes. Do you have a primary? No. So you're set then?
3: For now. Yes.
4: Okay. Stephen, let me ask you, to what extent do you think is is growth and migration to the state driving the costs higher here? And I mentioned that because there was a report that I noted earlier that uh, people are in fact migrating out of Denver instead of migrating into Denver. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, that's fairly new, right? It's a fairly new phenomenon.
6: Uh, yeah, it is a new phenomenon. People are responding to the fact that uh, if they don't have a well-paying job, particularly you're just out of college, you, you simply can't afford to pay rent, buy a car and uh, be able to go downtown and party after the abs game, I guess. But the, the, the housing prices started rising uh, in response about seven, eight years ago to this huge influx of people that were moving to Colorado and at the time we already had a housing shortage and over that time even though population has continued to to increase we haven't built enough housing to offset that increased demand so that's part of the problem the other problem with housing here is exacerbated is Now suddenly you have all this cheap money around and a lot of people felt like, hey, this is my best opportunity to get into a house. And I think they ignored the nominal price of the house and looked at what their monthly payments would be. And that was working for them for a while until interest rates popped up. Now they can't make the monthly payment on a house that normally they probably wouldn't have gone after. So it it makes complete sense that they're looking for places that are more affordable because a home still in America is. One of, our, one of our primary ways of uh, gaining equity.
4: Uh, when you say nominal price of the home, can you flesh that out? What, what does that mean exactly?
6: The menu price, the listed price on the house.
4: Um, um, you know, let me go to uh, Representative Byrd. Uh, the major theme of this session, and we heard it from the governor. In fact, every politician in the state basically promises promised we're gonna save Colorado's money, right? That was the the main theme of the session. We heard it everywhere. Uh, Of course, as I said, there's the city of Denver, um, different issue. Uh, But, Representative Byrd, when when you look at the work that you've done this year, would you say that you fulfilled that promise to save Colorado's money? And if you can break that down for us, what does that mean exactly?
3: Sure, Um, so I would say on the whole, we did. Uh, there, it's interesting, um, I was kind of going through, and as Earl earlier pointed out, that we looked at over 600 bills this last session and to try to go back and remember what we worked on and do, you know the pieces of legislation that I know I took deep dives on, oops, excuse me for that. Um, but, but on the whole, I think we did. This is, it's always a balance in our state, right? You're, you're trying to put more money back in people's pockets, get the economy, going um, back again after we had just suffered a pandemic. And one of these goals to try to get people feeling more secure and active in the economy again was putting more money in people's pockets. So um, we did a lot of good work. I think um, you saw some um, data that Chris put up as well. um, Eliminating feminine hygiene product taxes that puts more money in people's pockets. Um, Also allowing seniors to deduct social security income From um, state income taxes that's another way we were able to put money back in people's pockets they're um, reducing assessment rates on commercial property that helps businesses keep more money in their pockets Um, a lot of targeted income tax deductions that we did for families individual filers and businesses also work to exempt business personal property tax so on the whole I say there were some there were larger um, efforts that were made a lot of other smaller targeted efforts that might be meaningful to smaller groups um, throughout the state, but I I say as a whole, yes, we did. Um, Again, though, it's balanced. There are other things where there is necessary investment that needs to be made in our economy, and there are going to be long-term costs associated with that as well. Um, I, I don't,
4: you know, I was thinking, I wouldn't ask you a political question, but you know, it is an election year, and you don't have a primary, so I think I can ask you this question. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think you've heard from uh, critics, for example, some of the measures that you've passed is the fact that uh, from their point of view, uh, many of these measures are temporary in nature. Uh, you know, they last for one to two years uh, and some of them uh, argue that they're a cynical ploy, I guess that's the phrase I've heard, cynical ploy to quote voters um, in this election cycle. Uh, because they're not permanent. So I guess the, the, a follow-up question is, what, what's your take on that argument? And second, why are these not permanent uh, reductions in, in terms of uh, rebates, for example, or uh, you know the fee uh, reductions that, that's coming out of the state legislature?
3: That's a great question. And I, I think uh, most people in this group are very savvy. We know that we have a balanced budget amendment. Um, we can only spend in any year what we have in our pockets. And this year, we had extraordinary money come from the federal government, one-time dollars that had to be pushed out. So um, there were waivers of filing fees, some of these dollars, filing fees, other targeted fee reductions, and I have my list of 100 ways that we cut and, um, you know, cut fees here and did some targeted income tax reductions that were um, funded by some of these one-time dollars that we received from the federal government. Those, just by definition, are one-time expenditures. Also, because our economy and revenue is coming into the state, it's volatile from year to year, so it's not always prudent for us to build in long-term um, cost reductions when we don't know in the next year whether we will have revenue coming into the state to support those fee and fee reductions and cost cuts so much of this is being prudent knowing what we have and doing doing what we can when we know we have the money the other um i know that there was criticism um, that the governor brought on by um, advancing tabor refunds and making those happen earlier um that was done um, i don't know that the messaging around that maybe conveyed what the full intent was but i will say i know that today we know a dollar received today is much better than a dollar received next year. So advancing Tabor refunds out to people a year ahead of time definitely helps people. And in this age, when we're spending more money just for basic goods and services, those dollars will benefit people more today rather than next year.
4: And I'm going to go to Evelyn just in a second, but I want to get Stephen's take on uh, Reverend Bird. Uh, 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 what point that you know advancing table refund now helps Coloradans today uh, vis-a-vis you know in a year or so well sure
6: Uh, the net present value of a dollar today is uh, greater than it is getting it a year from now so that makes sense um i i do wonder do you get the same amount of Money today uh, in terms of the the dollar amount that you would have gotten for your table refund so if I was due $400 next year for my table refund am I getting $400 a day or am I getting some other number Do you know if my Tabor refund was supposed to be $400 because of the amount of taxes I paid in etc would I get $400 as it's pushed forward to me today or would do I get it less should I get $200 instead of $400 or?
3: Um, if I'm understanding yeah, go ahead, ma'am. correctly, um, I, it's my understanding that the, the refund actually might be more than $400 going out to people. That's being upward adjusted as um, our uh, budget people reconcile what tax dollars are received by the state. So you're probably getting more. I think it's closer oh, to $600 now.
4: Okay. Um, Evelyn, I wanna to go to you. You just released or releasing a report today um, highlighting several recent reforms and their long-term effects on housing. Um, s- summarize to us the main points of the report.
5: Sure, and I, and I just wanna say at the top that Representative Bird has, Bird has been really balanced in, in the areas that I work with, which is housing. Um, she's been a great partner to us and, and, and working on a lot of things that the state legislature has done. I think you know there's good and bad. They passed an Innovative Housing uh, Fund which um, was, was uh, similar to one of the recommendations that Peter Lafari and I had done in our uh, fellowship report last year. And I think, you know, just going back to the influx of federal dollars in, um, in the state, you know, for, for federal money, if you, use, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so I think one of the important things that uh, the state should be doing is looking at how to really pinpoint those dollars into ways that are effective and are meaningful for some of the issues that we're, we have here in Colorado. One of which is housing. So I would say that um, you know there's good and bad with with that. The money's there. Uh, if we, if you don't use it, it goes back. Um, and so that's always a challenge. Uh, my report today that was just released was on one of the uh, um, bills that were pa- was passed this last session, which was on uh, energy codes. And I think um, I'll just do a plug for it. I hope you all read it. it. It builds on my report of last quarter, which was on energy in general in, in the state and how really those energy codes um, can impact the cost of building. And so in our report, um, and we saw this in, in the Marshall Fire, uh, those communities that were impacted who had already um, in, um, um, implemented this the same code that the legislators, was talking about, which is the 2021 IECC plus additional green, um, codes. And, and the, um, cost to implement those codes was anywhere from 6,000 to 22,000, uh, per home. And so what we saw in the Marshall fire was that people couldn't afford to build based on, um, that added cost. So the city council basically said, you know, we're not going to implement that for these new homes. Uh, the legislature just days after passed the same energy code with exemptions for disaster victims. But what we're seeing is that really, that will add to the cost generally to build. And what we don't need, and and the governor has even said this, is that we don't need to add uh, additional costs to build when we're at such a deficit. So I think we really need to look at it. Those energy codes are really just paving the way for uh, electrification in our state, uh, which our utilities are not ready for. Um, I think it should be a, a choice for uh, consumers to choose what they want um, for their homes. But also, you know, these mandates are just going to add when um, right now we just need to build.
4: And I think what you're talking about, I think everybody's aware, uh, Louisville had these ordinance that uh, had their, uh, you know, their uh, green energy code. And their own city estimates put the amount of uh, complying with the code at about $20,000. And so this the, the you know the town decided we're not going to impose this one on the marshall fire victims um uh, recently i read that uh, there's some grant money that's avail- available in boulder county it's for ten thousand bucks so you still have to find you know another twelve thousand dollars to actually uh comply with this uh, uh with the green building code uh, i want to ask you so um you know the Representative, uh, bird uh, uh, correct me if i'm wrong I'm, it feels like you're defending these uh policy proposals, um, it's only because you're the only legislator in, in, on the panel. <laughs> um, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, the whole idea is that if we transition toward more efficient energy systems, uh, that in the long term, it's gonna save us money uh, and it's gonna transition our use of energy from you know, uh, fossil fuel, for example, to more, uh, uh, quote, unquote, cleaner energy Uh, you know the argument. Uh, Does that, how does that factor into your report? And what do you make of that argument that we're, you know, maybe we take this pain right now because we're transitioning to something uh, presumably better?
5: Well, I think that, um, first of all, it's not really accurate to say that we're gonna be saving money. So all of that just depends also on the utility costs. Um, you know, the utilities have to invest in order to update their infrastructure in order to, you know, go to this new renewable um, future. And so those are costs that are passed on to the ratepayer. So we have to look at those. I also think that if we are, you know, truly going to get there, that technology is only gonna help us later on. So, you know, there are things like heat pumps that you want to um, install in your house. Well, those aren't necessarily readily um, available here for the cold weather. And so when those come to market and, and we see good things happening, um, the the more they're on the market, the cheaper it'll be for the consumer. And so I think, you know, we just have to take a balanced view at all of this. And really when we're at this point where we have such high inflation, where, where uh, the consumer is just so pressed for, uh, all of these costs. Do we really need to add
3: to more on top of it?
4: And, and I want to ask uh, Stephen and Kristen a little bit. But you were nodding your head. You want to weigh in on what sure. Evelyn said?
3: Yes. And um, just for the record, I know you had mentioned maybe I'm defending some of the policies. I actually agree with what Evelyn had said. We need a much more balanced, nuanced approach to this. Um, there, there is a big push to um, standardize building codes throughout the state of Colorado. That. Um, for lots of reasons, and there are people on all sides of this argument that support that push for different reasons. Cities um, don't like that because we we like local control. I say that as a we because I formerly served um, as a member of my city council and we defended local control um, like nobody's business. That was really important to us to be able to define the quality and the character of our communities. That said, however, that's um, a, a non-uniform building code dries up building costs throughout the state. Um, so so there's pluses and minuses to that. Um, where I think we run into some trouble though is where we try to leverage a uniform building code to advance a specific policy, which is a shift in, in how we use energy and um, the types and sources of energy that we consume in our state. Um, what I'm hopeful for in our state, and, and I agree as I said with what Evelyn had said, that as there is a push that we are more nuanced in our policy, that there's more education, so that people are deciding what's right for them, that it's not so much a mandate. People are choosing to do this more rather than being forced to do it. Um, also, that to the extent that we're putting more of our, our, um, our homes and our appliances, our cars, everything that requires energy, to the extent that we are building um, demand for um, energy off of the grid, We need to pair that with our ability for the grid to provide the energy in a stable way we don't want to be like texas Um, and texas has lots of good things about it but we know that um, during a terrible snowstorm their grid wasn't able to provide the energy that the citizens of their state needed and that's a public health safety and welfare issue so we need to be thinking about that now um, especially with summer coming on board i know i cited a, a winter example for texas but Summer, there's huge demand on a grid. So we need to pair um, any change we make to sources of energy um, to our grid's capacity to address that. And I know that's the policy I'm advocating for as well.
4: And thank you. And if you note know that snowstorm that happened about two years, two years ago, right? Two years ago in Texas, uh, I think you're all gonna be paying about $600 million at least uh, as a result of that uh, 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 winter snap. Is that right? Yep, yeah, about six, least six hundred million bucks. That's that's a lot of money. Um, uh, Stephen, uh, you know the the constant headline has been surging home prices, and the question is how affordable uh, are Colorado homes today? Uh, the question is if the home price growth is outpacing inflation by that much, uh, what is causing it to run so high?
6: Well, we've already mentioned that there's increased demand and a lot of uh, cheap money floating around. But uh, it's this inflation has also increased the cost of a home. Because if you look at any data on the cost of the building materials and the labor that goes into just constructing the home, that's an additional layer of inflation that is, uh, uh, has to be figured into this.
4: Um, when you say that lots, I'm sorry, lots of money floating around, you, you mean money from California, right? All those. Californians moving over and buying. Well, you know
6: that's an interesting thing too. Is there are a lot of people. I have a friend who's a a realtor here in town. Been doing it for quite some time. And he and I were building some houses down in Wash Park. And uh, we built this uh, house that we listed for like one point three million dollars. And this, I'm sitting across the table at the closing from this 23 year old girl. Well, her husband wasn't there. Well, her her his folks. Just gave them the money to buy the house. So, I'm sorry, you say
4: that 22-year-old girl, the parents, she was 22 giving, or
6: 23, and the parents. I, I'm kind of, gave them money. I didn't ask her. Excuse me. What do you do for a living? Uh, you know to afford this. And but they, I overheard the conversation a bit, and it was either her or his parents. Just gave them the money to get them started. And I think there are a lot of people who have sold their homes in these places that have. Uh, historically had higher prices they cashed out and so they're not affected by the cost of financing
4: how do we uh, how do we find parents like that
6: <laughs> my, my dad always told me that I I have a trust fund it's very trusty it's, just, <laughs> it's not funded
4: that yeah, I, I don't even know what to say to that uh, and I'm a reporter you know I like stories. Uh, um, the mystery.
2: Um, go ahead. You mind if I, So on, on that point, not not to add, you know, not that I have a 1.3 million dollar uh, loan from my parents either. But no, uh, the the question about uh, on housing and what's driving this, and you you asked earlier, you know, to what extent is this really driven by just growth, the acceleration and growth, and influx of people? I, I, you know, I think when you when it comes to housing, when it comes to most Market, uh, you know, fundamentals. You're going to see demand, and you can't. It, it, demand is is driven by we're preference by by choices. What we're facing is really constrained market. It's really a supply constraint more than the influx of people. And I I guess I plug, um, I'll plug a report we'll have coming out next week. We have put out these estimates of supply. An uh, un- undersupply, we've said this is how much, the, this is the, lo- the housing deficit, last year with Evelyn we estimated it to be about 175,000 housing units, re-estimated it with some updated numbers from census and second homes, that now puts that number at about 195,000 units. Uh, deficit here in Colorado, the state as part of a transformational task force estimated that number to be more than 225,000 units short. And what I'll plug for the local, you know, elected officials here, uh, you, you, know, the, you know, local officials, state officials, but wherever your community is, we're going to be putting out a, a number by county, an undersupply number by county, and then tracking the monthly permit data to see to what extent permits are keeping pace with uh, what that undersupply is and how much we need to to un, you know to. Fill in the deficit and get back to a more stable. So we want to put a finer point on this question of not just we face a deficit, but actually by county, what is needed, and to what extent are we actually seeing that growth, and are we achieving, um, are we achieving what in fact is needed? And I think putting a sharper point on that, updating it quarterly, hopefully, is something that's useful in your community to say, look, this is this is. Pinpoint on the problem, and are we actually making a difference?
4: Stephen, go ahead. Well,
6: to add on to this is when I when we took this to the county level rather than just looking at the housing supply over the whole state, it was interesting the number of um, um, counties that had surplus of housing. When you first looked at it, for instance, uh, Summit County had a surplus of housing. You're like, well how can Sum- house-
4: sorry summit i'm from arizona where where is summit county how far away from denver
6: lake Dillon, uh what 70 miles
1: no.
6: No. it's in the mountains okay no. so so i look at this and i go well how could house prices be so high in summit county it's not that nice there you know and uh i found some research that defined certain counties, the National Association of Realtors put it out, defined certain counties in Colorado that were what they called vacation counties. And I also had data associated with that that estimated the amount of second homes that were in those counties. So when I took out the second homes, suddenly I went, oh, not all these homes are, these extra homes are available for people to purchase or to be able to rent long-term because many of them are set aside for, I'm gonna come out for two weeks to ski or their short-term rentals. So that explained the situation. Um, And and I know that that's probably an issue with some legislators about what's happening in mountain towns or maybe it's a local issue. So hopefully our reporting on this will uh, put a spotlight on that issue. Evelyn, go ahead, yeah.
5: Well, I I just wanna add that I think when we look at building um, in Colorado, we need to look at whether we're building the right type of housing and in the right location. So, so not
4: vacation homes.
5: Well, you know, I think vacation homes are going to be built and, and we as a state don't necessarily want to constrict people from coming to our state. But I think that, you know, we haven't been building enough kind of um, entry level homes, particularly in the front range. And those are the types of things that we need to really look at. So it's not just building it's it's really what are we building and, and where.
4: Stephen, go ahead, sir. Well, we, we did a
6: study on, uh, you guys remember that there, may, there was some talk about putting rent control on mobile homes up in Boulder you know, to try and stem the inflation. So as a side of that, I went through the property tax records to find out, well, what kind of homes have we been building over the last 20 years? And I don't remember the number exactly, maybe you do, but the one sector of homes that stood out by miles was single-family homes so it it was real representative showing that yeah we're building a lot of single-family homes but we're not building even though you may think it's the case we're not building as many uh you know condos uh townhouse communities and so forth that have a denser uh footprint so
4: so we're not building enough multifamily homes we're building single family residences is, is what's happening and now uh, you know i think since you're plugging your reports i just want to plug a report too the uh the uh, the denver gazette had a story a couple days ago about building permitting in the city of denver my favorite city as you now can tell i also live in, in denver uh and uh it's uh, it's an eye-opener to me at least to learn that you know that we're not permitting the process is so delayed so bogged down that you know i think the headline captures it it's a permitting pur- purgatory is what's happening uh and and kind of amplifies the, the, the ch- housing challenges that we now see represent bird I want to ask you because in this session uh, correct me if i'm wrong we put a lot of money into housing there's hundreds of millions of dollars that we've allocated you know a lot of the federal funding into housing but talk to us about what you've done on that on that uh, uh front
3: Right, so we did. A lot of the money again came from the federal government, and um, there was a big push to to make more grants, invest in innovative housing strategies. Um, that there's um, one of the bills will, will highlight funding for three um, D printing of homes, trying trying different types of home construction that will find a way to bring down the cost to construct homes, um, a revolving loan fund to help build more affordable, either for sale and also um, home um, rental product as well. Um, One thing that we did, this isn't related to um, federal dollars, but we renewed our low income housing tax credit here in the state of Colorado. And over the next 10 years, that'll amount to $421 million in tax credits. Um, that $421 million um, long-term investment in trying to bring the private sector dollars in and build more affordable rental housing. And that's a theme in our state. Most of what is getting built, um, that at least that we are able to um, incentivize this more rental product. And um, that's a bit of a challenge. I think that creates a housing stock supply that is out of balance and doesn't help people really have that opportunity to buy a home, build wealth and um, you know gain that financial stability. So we, we can do certain things at the state level, even with the one-time dollars, but really a lot of those um, dollars, they are a drop in the bucket. We need to do bigger things that I think fix the way the market works so that the market will operate efficiently and it's not us trying to find creative ways with tax dollars to spur construction of more rental product. Um, I don't think that was anybody's dream we'd like to have our own home and
4: and I want to get back to you on on fixing the market in a little bit but I want to ask uh, Chris you earlier in your presentation you talk about the misery index Uh, in you know we're both transplants from Arizona and if you're from Arizona you'd think that the market over there is the craziest in the country and then of course you just have to move to Denver and and but but talk talk to, to us about the mystery index And I guess the question I have for you is that uh, and maybe it's a question for Stephen as well, is that all right. OK, so if you're how do we resolve such a you know, gigantic uh, uh, challenge such as the mystery index that you're talking about? It? And I guess the second question maybe Stephen can answer. I would say, OK, when do we actually buy a home? If you're like, oh, who are, how many of you are thinking of buying a home. Raise your hand if you are that <laughs> two, two, two all, right. all right. So everybody has a home now. That's great. That's awesome. All right, for so those two folks, what's the best timing for them? When do, you know, how long do we wait? December, January of next year when it's really like cold here?
2: Is that what? Uh, December 17th at 2 p.m. That's, that's <laughs> okay. when you should okay. go. Okay. No, I, 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 um, uh, maybe if you would have asked this, you know, a few months ago, you might have had a few more hands, but people have changed their mind. But um, no, the, 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 the idea on the misery index, again, was to spotlight this, this core issue facing a segment of Colorado that is crucial for, for growth. You know, the number one issue or you know, top issue we, we hear when talking with, um, like officials and i 'm sure you hear it from constituents, you hear it from businesses, business associations is is you know, we can we can bring in companies, we can bring in people, but they can 't find homes or they struggle to find homes and this is a this is an economic development issue. This is no surprise. this is no news for anyone necessarily in this room but but we we wanted to ensure that as we hope and would expect there is a breaking point, prices will moderate. but given where Federal interest rates are going, and mortgage rates will will follow. This is going to reflect even higher costs, and so we wanted to ensure we we reflected both of those issues facing facing consumers in that market.
4: Uh, Stephen, just really quickly, sir, I think you were going to weigh in.
6: Well, if you're asking when you should buy a house, it's, uh, <clears throat> as this interest rate uh, in uh, increasing cycle that the Fed's pursuing right now goes forward eventually they'll tame inflation. We don't know when that is. Um, you could look to the futures markets to see what futures prices are in interest rate instruments and get a sense. But I, so this this will eventually taper off and the Fed will have to, to go back to easing again eventually. And uh, because of this increase in the interest rates, uh, I've already seen that uh, a report from the Mortgage Bankers Association, and maybe Earl can weigh in on, on this, but. New applications for uh, loans for new home purchases were, were down. Oh, I don't, it was 80, 90%. And on refinances, it was way down. So people are already responding to the market conditions the way they should to be rational. And as soon as the uh, demand for that housing uh, through new purchases or when uh, the demand for financing goes down, eventually, Prices will drop because people won't be able to sell their house because they're not getting 10 offers, they're getting one and it's below market. So prices will start to drop. And it's a cycle we've seen in Colorado ever since I was this big. It'll go up and down. I think we're gonna be at elevated levels. It's a long run trend going upwards, but you'll cycle around that.
4: So the short answer is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, just one question. I, I think we're, uh, and my apologies, we were, uh, there. Uh, I wanted, to. Talk about crime, as Chris noted, there's crime is costing the state 31 billion dollars, cost the state 31 billion dollars last year, you know, a couple billion dollars from the year before, which is a pretty dramatic jump. But we're, we're fortunately run out of time. I want to ask you if there is one thing that you can do, um, really, to one reform, one legislation, one count in you know, one city ordinance, to address affordability what would it be and let me just start with representative bird
3: sure so um, affordability i would look at the housing market and (coughs) the change we need there is to take another look again at um, how we handle construction defect um, construction defects in our state it's um, something that's long overdue Um, there needs to be a more rational approach we want to do everything we can of course to preserve um, good quality home construction people should get the value for their money but it should not be so easy to, to sue everybody for de minimis mistakes. There needs to be some way to rein in liability in a way that um, brings more rationality to the market and allows it to function more freely.
4: <laughs> Evelyn. Um,
5: I would agree with that. I think when the legislature passed a construction defect fix, it we found out it didn't actually fix it. And so I think addressing that is something um, that they should take a look at again. Um, I, will, I will plug um, my former report on the statewide building codes because I think that that is um, a, a nuanced position. We talked about the statewide energy code. I think that the harm there, um, and we, even though I'm a home rule advocate, the, we advocated for a statewide building code because we wanted to unlock innovation. So, it's really take advantage of some of the things uh, Rep Bird was talking about with 3D printing, modular homes if we can assembly line this, so if you build in one jurisdiction, you can build in all jurisdictions, I think we'll we'll see some economies of scale there, which is different from the energy code because what you have to do now is take the statewide energy code and then marry it to whatever building code you have in your uh, local jurisdiction. And so I don't think we're actually gaining anything from that. So I think we should look at that. I think that um, we should, really uh taper down our our um energy goals uh we should retake t- a look at how we're addressing that as a state
4: thank you stephen
6: i like cost benefit analysis and i think before any new legislation is passed it should be required that the legislature has to hire somebody or have their staff do the cost benefit analysis and let me just give you an example rocky ford colorado great cantaloupes if you're not from colorado that's you should eat Rocky Ford cantaloupes. Uh, there's about 1500 households out there homes. The Black Hills Energy Corporation did a study to find out what total electrification of those homes in that community would be. And that means people who were using natural gas to heat and cook. Nope. You're all electric now. The per unit cost range was between 32000 and $37,000 a house. Now, this includes the infrastructure to provide that extra electricity, do the wiring behind the meter and the walls of the house so that you don't burn your house down with all that electricity. And so the total cost of the community uh, was gonna be, for 1,500 homes was between 46 million and $54 million. I would think that uh, a legislature who is, a legislator who is, trying, who is going to enforce these new electrification uh, codes would, Kind of want to hear what the voters think about that before they sign on for that. So,
4: Chris, I,
2: you, um, I thought I had an answer, but I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna change it up a little bit because I think housing is I I, I think housing is critical. But one thing we haven't actually talked about today, we um, something that's been front of mind for me and and our team for the last two years is actually in the healthcare space. So we saw a pretty substantial reform around healthcare in imposing a coto option, or initially termed the public option. That we put out some work highlighting that this is, the, the issues primarily around the now rate setting that uh, is uh, dictated by a 10 year average national rate of inflation now faces major complications with the fact that actual inflation and the state's own estimates for their Medicaid budget for cost growth are three to four times what the allowable growth rate in these premiums for the new card option will be that's uh, going through the process right now, which will set be um, introduced <clears throat> and should be made available for consumers later this fall <clears throat> in the individual and small group market, but <clears throat> I would focus on healthcare after we resolve housing, but I would resolve a lot of the competitiveness issues we face in in our healthcare space and really examine a lot of the recent reforms that impose price controls on a market as opposed to improving the underlying competitiveness. Excuse me.
4: Well, and with that, thank you again for your time. (laughs) I appreciate four things that um, I got from this conversation, don't buy a house, Uh, Don't drive a car. Don't get sick. And if you haven't married yet, go find somebody whose parents can give you and your (laughs) new spouse $1.3 million. Thank you again. Appreciate it. (laughs) Um,
1: We have a few minutes for questions from the audience. Alexa is in the back. If you have a question, just raise up your
3: hand and she'll come grab you.
2: I
4: rarely need
2: a microphone, but when I do, it doesn't work. Um, (laughs) The question that I have is, we've looked at what crime costs. Uh, The question that I have is, how does regulation affect... All heard about the police force somewhere in Michigan who can't go to emergency or anything but emergency calls because they don't have any money for gas. Anybody not hear that? Okay. So, how what what is the, what is the cost of regulation in terms of inflation, and how does that regulation, or I'm sorry, in, inflation within the public sector affect the the government that we're getting, that we're we're
4: overpaying for?
6: Well, the, the government pay, purchases goods and services in the private sector from the private sector the same way that private citizens do. So the uh, inflationary impact is the same. They have the same amount of dollars, but it costs more to provide the services and any goods they offer. So they can only offer fewer services and fewer goods.
2: My, my question is really about here in Colorado, as opposed to what, Is there anything that we know of that, that's being
4: impacted Well, for a really tough, complicated question like that, I think we have Representative Bird.
3: Sure, I'll just point out wages, right? So um, this is something that we're seeing at the state level, and I know local governments are experiencing this as well. Everybody is competing for talent out of um, the same labor pool, and um, as we're looking at fewer available workers um, that are uh, participating in the workforce right now, we're bidding up wages. So now we're paying more for, or fewer people actually. And at the state level, we haven't been able to fill a lot of positions because we, we're probably more budgetarily constrained than many local governments are um, and just cannot compete with pri- the private sector's capacity um, to pay people and really be competitive in some of these markets. So I would say um, just probably the biggest place we see this is in staffing. I'll also point out materials costs. So we've passed significant legislation over the, fa- uh, over the past several years to reinvest in transportation infrastructure. So as we see the cost of, of raw materials go up, that's gonna impact our ability to invest um, in, in a lot of the maintenance and um, innovation we're trying to do with transportation sector. Um, that, and that would go for all. Any local government that's trying to invest in water infrastructure, that's a really big deal across, at least I know Metro, Denver, um, we've got a lot of aging water infrastructure, so costs are um, definitely impacting what um, we're able to make in terms of investment in that in that area as well. Ma'am. Well, I actually have two questions. One, um, as I've been on the campaign trail, people have asked me, well, why don't they just turn the oil back on so they can make things better and we can... You know, balance everything out. That's one. I mean, that's. I think that's a legitimate and honest question because we know the current policies. Day two, oil was turned off, and now we're begging people. Um, That notwithstanding, the second one is: How are outside investors impacting housing affordability and availability? And is the term "starter home" extinct?
2: Who
4: wants to take up the first question?
2: Uh Which one do you want me to answer? Oil. Take on some of your work on oil and gas. You want
6: me to... No, not yet. Okay. Uh, I think I've said all I can say about oil and gas. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, there is uh, some evidence out there that uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, corporate entities have. Uh, uh, matter of fact, I sold a house to a hedge fund. And uh, and it closed in a week with no in home inspection. So I will tell you that that. Uh, Homes being purchased from investments firms and and, uh, companies that wanna get into rentals is a real thing. And uh, it it is impacting prices.
5: I'll just mention and I'll do another plug because Earl and I did a podcast with Chris Wright from um, Liberty Oil last month, I guess. And it was a little bit on energy and gas prices. And I think, you know, what you see is that there's reduced investment in oil and gas companies because you know the administration has basically said we don't we want we want to get rid of it so now it's like okay turn it on and if you're an investor and you're looking to invest your dollar in a company i don't know if you would necessarily do it in an oil and gas company that eventually is not going to have work to do so there's 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 that aspect i think that there's ramp up costs you know you can't just turn on turn on the light switch and you know oil keeps coming so I think that there's a lot of that um, that's impacting gas prices
6: we we just did a study on this looking at the county by county you know the SB 181 the legislation passed a few years ago about, uh gave local and local uh, governments control over the, the permitting process for oil and gas exploration and I think the people who were the proponents behind this bill got exactly what they wanted because they pushed almost all the new production what there is out into Weld County out in the northeast sector so they got it away from these front range uh, uh, places in Broomfield Boulder Larimer County where they wanted it so it was effective in in doing what they wanted and uh, Weld County hasn't doesn't seem to have been very affected by it they're permitting this up and so.
4: Do we have room for? Oh yeah, yep. One more
0: question. Go ahead, sir. Good morning. I'm Tim Walsh from Jefferson County. I'm a home builder. So you know, before you even put a shovel in the ground, it's sixty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars just for development yeah. fees, permits, and now we're adding. I think the cost to electrify mm-hmm. a home, on our own estimates, is close to about sixty thousand. If you're talking net zero, it could be probably eighty thousand. You know. Think about mining all the materials that it takes and the impact on the environment of mining those materials. Put that aside for a second. Where is the economic fairness, and where is the individual choice to the consumer when we're saying, now you're going to be forced to pay $50,000, $100,000 more for a home, (coughs) and by the way, it's going to cost more to operate it, because electricity is going to go through the roof, because we don't have enough. It's a simple supply and demand equation, and nobody addresses that. There is absolutely no economic fairness to the people living in Weld County, Adams County, that are commuting hundreds of miles every day to work when energy costs are going up. They can't afford a home. Um, You know, and we keep, it seems like our state legislature is putting the head in the sand and just thinking that we're going to get, you know, power from (coughs) The sun, that's not going to happen in our lifetime. Well, you know, Excel says only 50% uh, renewables is possible by 2050, not 100% like our governor is telling us by 2040.
4: Well, that's another tough question, so, (laughs) ma'am.
3: I'm the foil today. (laughs) So I, I really appreciate that and um, I do want, I, I need to go back and reread what what we passed, but it is not the mandate that it started off as. So the bill that um, this gentleman referenced would started off as a mandate for um, uniform building codes that um, pushed electrification of all new builds and then not only new builds, but if you were gonna pull a permit, say to replace um, your gas stove, that these building codes would not have allowed you to replace your gas stove or your hot, your gas fired hot water heater, you would have to transition to different technology. So that is not what ultimately passed. Um, There is a push for that though. So this is a time for people to be talking to legislators, Um, talk to your elected representatives, let them know what your concerns are, because it is true at the same time our legislature was considering this bill, which did not pass in its introduced form, the the one that you're concerned about. It be it at the end of the day, the Home Builders Association and the Colorado Municipal League moved to a neutral position on the bill. So what it eventually wound up passing was something that was required uh, more study, bring bring people to the table to figure out how we're going to do this in the long term. So there's a longer process, which. Everyone. There are many people who don't feel the same about um, humans' impact on our climate. So I just want to be respectful of that. But many people who do rec- do believe that the way we consume energy is changing our environment and not for the better. And that's where the the consensus lies in our legislature. And so people are pushing to try to to mitigate that so that our impact is less. The built environment is one of those places that um, emits. Heavily um, greenhouse gases, so there was a push to do that, but it, it needs to be done in a nuanced way that recognizes people's capacity to pay for this and the, the ability, again, as I said earlier, of our grid to responsibly provide energy, um, electricity. So there's lots of balance. This it shouldn't be rushed, um, and and it is true what was initially um, introduced was something that wasn't recognizing economic realities, even for relatively affluent communities attempting to rebuild after the marshall fire so there's a lot of work to be done there and um, i I did want to hopefully put your mind a little bit at ease but there's bigger public dialogue here and i hope you stay engaged so that we are thoughtful as legislators moving through and and pass good policy for our state
4: so sir after the panel you
3: you can come talk to me some more. Although I, I really, I think I got a strong sense for where you're at, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll just
5: say my report is exactly about this.
3: So download it over at
5: commonsenseinstituteco.org because um, Rep Bird is right. It's, 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 it's a process for um, to basically implement these codes to adopt these codes. I think the stakeholder process is going to be really important in all of this, and I think that the um, public buy-in needs to be a part of that because you know, they uh, went through and basically said everybody who is gonna be on this energy code board, but you know, the people who are impacted the most, which are the homeowners and the residents in Colorado don't have a say on that energy board. So I think it's an important thing that, um, that the energy board take public input in this because it is all over the place.
4: Thank you again, everybody.